0: Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. If you need a Bible, put your hand in the air. Our ushers will be glad to bring you one. We have a couple up front. Anybody else need a Bible? Not a problem here. We have Bibles that we would love to put in your hands because we want to study the Word together. Thank you, Katina. Looking at Mark chapter 11. That's where we'll continue our preaching through the book of the Gospel of Mark today. Mark 11, so as we're turning there, let me ask this question and then illustrate that question in my life with a story. Have you ever been on a mission seeking something and found out that at the end of that mission it was completely fruitless? I sure have. Let me, let me tell you about that. Now, when it comes to giving gifts, I'm probably a typical guy. I procrastinate especially around Christmas time because generally it means if I want to honor my wife and get her something that she will really love and enjoy, it means a trip to the mall. (laughs) The mall is not my favorite place to be. I would often just as soon go to the dentist as go to the mall. And uh, so last... yeah, last Christmas, I, had, I knew what exactly what I wanted. I, I, I had listened. I had tried to be a good husband. I had listened to her conversation when she told me what she wanted for Christmas. And, and I, I had taken note. And I knew that one of the things that she really wanted was a pair of black fashion boots that she could wear with her skirts as she taught in the winter. So I had planned, and I had gotten in the car, and I was driving north to the Brea Mall. And it was a Saturday. And I, I took Brea Boulevard up, and I took it all the way to Be- Birch. And I took a ride on Birch, and then I took a right so that I'm approaching the Brea Mall from the north side. And I looked left, and that parking structure had a barricade in front of it saying, closed, full. And I looked right. I said, hey, I have one more structure that at least I know of about this place. I'm going to turn right and go to that structure on the west side. And I got to there, and it was barricaded and marked closed and I'm now I'm starting to wonder okay I guess there's a little bit of hope there's another big parking lot on the south that kind of wraps around to the east side of the mall I'll, I'll go look there and I'm, I'm creeping my way along in the bumper to bumper traffic in that frontage road and when I come up to that three-way stop sign you know the one by BJ's restaurant and I'm looking left at that vast parking lot All the alleyways that you're supposed to be able to drive down in order to find a parking spot, they were crammed with bumper-to-bumper cars. There was no way I was going to get a parking spot. So at that stop sign, I just turned on my right blinker, and I exited, and I went home. I didn't even get out of the car. You talk about a fruitless mission. I had one thing in mind. I knew what I wanted. I knew that that mall had at least two or three stores from which I could choose, I knew it would honor my wife, and I came home empty-handed. It was a fruitless mission. Well, I was seeking boots as a Christmas present. And in today's passage, we're going to find that Jesus is seeking something too. He comes into Jerusalem, and we find that He is seeking fruit. We'll find that He's seeking fruit from a fig tree we'll find that he grows into the temple, the center for Jewish uh, religious expression, and he's seeking fruit there too. And thats he's not finding fruit on the trees, he's not finding fruit in the temple, at least the kind of fruit that he's looking for. So if you are a person who has a short attention span, I just want you to pay attention for the next minute, because I'm going to give you the whole sermon in one sentence. <laughs> Jesus is seeking fruit, and faith is, is the fruit that he's seeking. So we'll, we'll follow this through Mark 11. But, but as we do, think about your life. Jesus is looking at this congregation and he's seeking fruit. Faith is the fruit he's seeking. He's looking at your life. He's looking at my life and he's seeking fruit. Faith is the fruit that he's seeking. So let me pause and pray, and then we'll read beginning at Mark chapter 11. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now in Jesus' name. We praise you and we worship you. We thank you for these words that you have recorded, these truths about yourself, these truths about humanity, and we thank you that these truths are unchanging, just like you. And we pray now that as we open and read and study Your Word, that You would prosper us by Your Holy Spirit, that You would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and grant us that measure of faith that we might listen to You, hear from You, and be changed by You. We want to bear fruit, Lord. We want to be a faithful people. Only by Your grace and by Your Spirit can that happen. So we humbly ask and eagerly expect as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there also said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Let's pause there. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the the center of Jewish religious culture and religious activity. It is the place where the temple is. The temple is the place that God has determined where his presence will dwell there uniquely. It is the place that pilgrims, uh, Jews from near and far, would travel to there to offer their worship and their sacrifices before them. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and Mark has been teaching us in the earlier chapters that Jesus has now for some time set his face on Jerusalem. He's been teaching at least three times his disciples, telling them that he was heading there and that suffering and death would await him there. And they've been slow to get it. But now today Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he does so in an intentional way. He does so riding a colt, one on which no one has ever sat. And as he does that, the crowds recognize that there's something unique about this Jesus as he rides into town on this colt. And as we focused on in last Palm Sunday, this familiar passage, Jesus did that in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah nine. Where this Davidic king, this one that had been promised, this one that these people had been waiting for, for years, for centuries, this one would be coming into town riding on the colt. And Jesus does that, and as he does, he's boldly and intentionally declaring something about himself. He's saying, I am Messiah. So Jesus rides into town. And, and the people that go before him and the people that are following him as he comes into town are shouting, Hosanna! Lord save us, in other words. They're recognizing that this is a, an epic moment in history. And they are praising him and worshiping him. But look at the stark contrast in verse 11. Jesus gets into town. There's this throng, this crowd around him shouting his praises and worshiping as he rides and then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Rather anticlimactic, wouldn't you say? Riding on the road toward town, there's a crowd around him shouting and praising and saying, Lord, save us. And Mark makes no mention of that when he gets into the temple, which is the center of religious practice and worship. If anybody, if any place you would expect Jesus to be recognized as Messiah, you would expect it to be the temple. But Mark makes no note of any sort of notice when Jesus walks into the temple that day. But he does make a note that Jesus enters the temple seeking something. He looks around, verse 11 He went in, and when he had looked around at everything, so Jesus is surveying what's happening there in the temple, because it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now a note here about him going out of Jerusalem again in the evening, because it's late, to Bethany. Jerusalem was a place where there were lots of people, especially this is the time of the Passover. So everybody's coming into town, lots and lots of people here. And it's common for people who had friends or relatives at a nearby town to go out there to a smaller village and stay. And we know from other um, passages of Scripture that Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived in Bethany. So we suspect that Jesus, when he retreats from Jerusalem at the end of every day, he and his disciples go back and they spend time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Just just a thought there about Mark's comment uh, saying that he did that. So Jesus entered the temple and he looked around. What was he looking for? Verse 12 On the following day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So now Jesus, having surveyed the temple and gone out to Bethany, the next day he's going back toward Jerusalem, back toward the temple, and he sees a fig tree in leaf. And he's hungry. So what do we learn about this passage, this particular paragraph about Jesus? We see Jesus' true humanity here. We see that he knows hunger pangs just like you and I do. If we spend a few hours without eating something, our stomachs remind us, it's time to eat. And that's what's going on here for Jesus, the Savior of the world, fully God, fully human, to the point where he experiences hunger. And it's his hunger that causes him to move toward that fig tree as he looks and sees it in the distance. And it's in leaf. It's green. There's signs of life there. And he moves toward that tree seeking something. He moves toward that tree seeking fruit and expecting it to be there because its leaves were there um, giving indication... That there was life in that tree. So Jesus follows that, that path. He goes up to that tree and he examines the tree for fruit. And he could not find anything on it. For it was not the season for figs. This passage has troubled me as I read it over the years. It's probably mystified you as well. Jesus has gotten a lot of heat. For seemingly irrational behavior here in cursing a fig tree when it's not even the season for figs, right? That just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. I have studied it and read and tried to wrap my mind around it. And the best explanation I think that I can maybe offer you, the one that seems to have made some sense out of it for me, is to understand a little bit better how Mediterranean fig trees work. Mediterranean fig trees are are a kind of tree that go dormant during seasons of the year. And when they do uh, emerge from dormancy, generally one of the first things that happens is these nodules, these first ripe figs as they are called in scripture, they come out about the same time as the leaves come out. So when 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 a Mediterranean fig tree is in leaf, it's reasonable to expect not ripe figs on it, but to expect these nodules that will one day become ripe figs. They are in the Hebrew called pagim, and uh, apparently they're tasty. The locals would love to eat them. So when Jesus sees this tree from a distance in full leaf, it seems reasonable that he would go to it expecting not to find full ripe figs, but he would find these nodules. And they're nutritious and delicious, apparently, according to the locals. And uh, it would not be uncommon for someone Pilgriming from wherever they are toward Jerusalem to stop and pick these and be nourished by them on the way. But Jesus approaches this tree and doesn't even find that. He finds nothing on it. One scholar said that this tree's leaves were boasting something that the tree wasn't producing. So these leaves of this tree was was giving indication from afar. I mean, it was so leafy that from afar, Jesus could notice that there was life in this tree. These leaves were giving indication to believe that there was life. But when Jesus approached the tree and found no figs on it, even though it's not the season for figs, the tree is practically dead, right? The purpose of a fig tree is to produce figs. This fig tree had failed to fulfill its purpose. Its mission was going unfulfilled. Jesus is seeking fruit on this fig tree and he finds none. And therefore, he utters a curse to it. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him. End of story. For now. Because what Mark does now is he creates another Markan sandwich for us to eat where he takes the story of the fig tree and he cuts it in half and he inserts in the middle of it another story. And in this case, it's the story of the temple. So the story of the fig tree serves as a visible parable for Jesus' disciples and for us. And this parable applies directly to what we see Jesus doing as he turns now to the temple in verses 15 and 16. He had approached the fig tree looking for fruit seeking fruit and finding none and now he approaches the temple having already sought at the temple in verse 11 he already had entered the temple and looked around and he knew what was going on there and now the next day verse 15 we pick up the story as jesus coming into the temple and they came to jerusalem And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That's another problematic paragraph for me to read about Jesus, right? When we think of Jesus and his patience, you think of how... How gracious and merciful he has been to minister to the crowds. How patient he has been with his disciples who are knuckleheads and slow to believe and slow to understand, right? He's so patient. And yet here we see him go into the temple, this house of worship, right? This place where God has said his presence dwells uniquely on this earth at that period of time. And he gets violent, he overturns tables and he kicks over stools. And I can imagine the chaos that would be there. I don't know why, but I have a vision in my mind of the pigeons and things fluttering around, right? Having escaped their cages because the cage broke when it fell off the table or whatever. It just, it must have been chaos. It was quite a spectacle. And why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus do that? What, what's this activity about? First of all, what it, why were money changers there? Why were there animals there? Why were people buying and selling? What was going on? Well, this is the outer court of the temple. It's the largest area of the temple, the, the, the place of the temple where almost everyone is welcome. They call it the court of the Gentiles. And the design then was for this to be a place for the people outside of the nation of Israel to come and to hear things taught about God, to learn about God, and to be brought into the the fellowship or the commonwealth, if you will, of Israel to be brought into the blessings that God has for His people Israel, even though they're outside of Israel. Because God is a God who welcomes the outsiders in. He has a heart for the sojourner. He has a heart for the downtrodden. And His temple was even designed for that to be the place. So this is a place where the pagan nations could even come and hear about God, the Gentiles, But what is happening instead is this is a place of commerce. This is a place where there are animals being sold there for the sacrifices. So as people would come during Passover and prepare to worship God according to his design, according to his law that has been revealed in the Old Testament, that required offering of sacrifices of animals that were spotless, that were perfect, that were without blemish. Now, if you lived a ways away, you could bring your own animal. That's allowed. But that animal had to be spotless at the time of sacrifice. So you could set out on the journey, and that animal could become injured along the way. And then it would no longer be a, a righteous sacrifice before the Lord. So makes sense. What a lot of people were doing is selling that animal back where they lived turning it into currency, putting the currency in their hand, and pilgriming, you know, traveling over to Jerusalem. They would get into the temple, and they would trade that currency back then for a spotless lamb or a pigeon or whatever it was that they were going to offer before God, knowing that the one they bought was perfect. It had been pre-screened, if you will, by the high priest, because it was the high priest that were providing oversight for this whole enterprise. So, and as you can imagine, the high priests were padding their own pocket by selling these critters for a profit. So, this is a a taste of some of the commerce that's going on. Now, another thing that's going on is there are money changers. So, people would come and they they would offer once a year this temple tax. It was a, a tax that is explained to us in Exodus chapter 30. And what that is is that every man, woman, child, every person who um, comes and worships at the temple and expects to be covered under the atoning sacrifice that is offered, there's a census taken. And as you take this census, you bring and you pay the temple tax as a sign of, of being included in that census. So people who lived out in these pagan nations that were under control of other governments were living in a place where the common currency often had the image of a pagan god on it, or a pagan deity. So they would come to the temple and want to pay the half shekel tax, but they would not want to do that with a coin that had an image of a pagan god on it. So they would change those coins in for coins that were right, so that they could pay the tax. Now, of course, this was also corrupt, and the exchange rates were fluid, And people were making a profit on it. So God's people were being exploited because of what God had commanded in worship. So that is all of this activity that's going on in the court of the Gentiles. That Jesus, as he sees it, he comes into the temple looking for fruit. And what he finds is this commerce. And he begins to overturn the tables and disrupt this faithless religious activity. You see, they were doing it in the name of worshiping God. They were going through the motions. Yes, they were providing these animals. And yes, they were uh, providing coinage that would be suitable for paying the temple tax. But they were not doing it on the basis of faith. They were doing it for their own interests, padding their pockets and things like that. So that is why Jesus becomes enraged, righteously so, angered. And it's zeal for his father's house. That causes him to do this. And he explains as he is disrupting all of this faithless religious activity, he explains, he teaches the people what he's doing and why. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So instead of this out outer court of the Gentiles being a house of prayer for all the nations by which the Gentiles even can, can come and hear the things of the one true God and have a chance to grow in relationship with Him through faith instead of that happening what they have is crooked commerce happening which is why He says you have made it a den of robbers and all of this was happening under the approval of the chief priests and the scribes So Jesus really is calling out the religious leaders of the day in the center of the epicenter, if you will, of religious, Jewish religious culture and worship. He calls them out there for their impropriety, for their faithlessness. And as such, now they are seeking something too. Jesus came to the temple seeking something. Faith. He came seeking fruit in the temple. And now, verse 18, these chief priests are seeking something. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus came to the temple seeking fruit. Faith is the fruit he was seeking. He came to the fig tree seeking fruit. And the fig tree is a parable, a visible parable of what Jesus was looking for and what he is doing. Look with me at verse 22. This is what Jesus is getting at. He explains. Now, Jesus and his disciples again had retreated back to Bethany, spent the night there, and now we're heading back to Jerusalem again. Verse 20, And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So Jesus had obviously sought fruit on that fig tree, found none, cursed it. And now Peter walks by and notices, look, that tree is dead to the roots. And he marvels at it. I mean, that's power. If someone speaks a word and something physical dies, that's uncommon power. That's what Peter's marveling at here. And he says, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answers them in a way that also mystifies me. He doesn't explain exactly how it is that that this fig tree has become dead, but instead he gives them a lesson on prayer. He says, have faith in God. Jesus is seeking fruit And faith is the fruit that he is seeking. So fruitful faith has Almighty God as its object. Have faith in God. That's the first command that Jesus gives Peter and his disciples when they question how it is that this fig tree is now dead. Have faith in God. It's the prerequisite of all that follows. You see, the problem is that sin has caused a separation between God and man. And the only prayer that any of us can ever expect God to hear, when we're in sin, is this: is the prayer of of repentance and faith, expression, of of trust, in the one true God. Listen to Isaiah fifty nine one and two. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin causes God's ears to be deaf to our prayers. Our sin causes God's ears to be deaf to our prayers. So the only prayer that we can expect God to hear when we're in sin is a prayer of repentance. Because we know that he will never turn back a repentant child when he returns. He'll never deny you that. Sin's a big deal. And it separates us from Him. That's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They had deep, intimate fellowship with God in the garden. They they were deceived by the serpent. They chose to believe Him rather than God. And they ate of the fruit. And immediately their fellowship with God was, was breached. There was a breach in that fellowship. It was broken. And they were cast out of the garden. And God placed a flaming sword to protect them from ever entering that in again. This relationship had been forever changed. And that's the state of every human born on earth since then. You and me. Born in sin, alienated and separated from the one true God who made us. Alienated by our sin in a way that prevents God's ears from hearing our prayers. So before you come to faith, you can pray all you want, but you have no assurance that God will ever hear or answer those prayers. But when you obey Jesus' command here, have faith in God, and the one true God is the object of your faith, you turn to Him, you turn from sin, and by faith receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, He hears that prayer. And that now opens up a whole new realm of prayer available to you because God's ears now can hear the prayers that you offer. Fruitful faith has the Almighty God as its object. And this prayer can look like that. Listen to Paul as he explains it to Romans, the Roman church in chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is what Jesus is looking for when he comes to the temple. He's looking for fruit, and the fruit he's looking for is faith. And that's exactly what was absent from that flurry of religious activity in the temple. Let me ask you this. Jesus is also looking for this sort of fruit here at Grace. He's looking for this fruit here in you and in me. Have you prayed this prayer? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you repented from your sin? Or do you continue to be frustrated by not receiving answers to your prayers? Because you're not in Christ. His ears are still deaf from you. Today you can trust Him. You can repent. And you can receive forgiveness for your sins. So fruitful faith, this kind of fruit that Jesus is looking for, it has the one true God as its object. Fruitful faith also is a faith that believes against all odds. Look with me at verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, that sounds really impossible to me. And that's the point. Jesus has used hyperbole before. He's talked about how impossible it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's more possible to get a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is impossible, right? So Jesus is using hyperbole here again, talking about this mountain to be taken up and to be cast into the sea. It's impossible, humanly speaking. There isn't a human that can do this. But by faith in the one true God, it's possible. Because everything is possible in God. Fruitful faith believes not on the one who is praying, but on the one to whom he prays. Because the prayer that is being offered up is being offered up to a God who has character. A God who is omniscient. A God who is omnipotent. A God for whom nothing is impossible. What's your mountain? What is it in your life that seems impossible? Maybe you're like me and and you, you get up against things that seem impossible and that discourages you from praying. Because nobody wants to pray for something and then be disappointed by it not coming about. That's one of the ways that God is stretching me recently is he's asking me to, to grow in prayer, to grow in that expression of my faith and to pray about things that are impossible. Things that, things that I kind of tend to think that I have some control over yet feel impossible to me. Case in point, um, we've had a generator at Biola. I work at the central plant and operate the the power plant there. We've had a generator that we've been limping along for the last two or three weeks because one of its electronic components has failed to function the way it should. So um, moment by moment in the afternoon, we'd have to be there with a little screwdriver making fine adjustments just to keep it online so that we could prevent Biola's utility bills from going through the roof. Well, this last week was finally the day where we were able to source the part and get the engineer who would come and install this device. And he showed up on Thursday and he wired it in. And by Thursday night, it was wired in, but it was still powered down. Friday was the day um, to come back and power it back up and to test it and to tune it and all of those sorts of things. And he did that. And when he restored power to this new device... Another device, equally expensive, equally as uh, important, in fact, maybe more so because if this device that failed the power-up uh, couldn't be replaced, we could not run that generator at all. We would have gone to a worse situation, from one from having to babysit it to one from just leaving it off until you get the right part. And I'm faced with this, and Joey and I are sitting there, and we say, okay, Lord, what are you going to do now? This seems really Im- impossible. I, I called the repair house, and uh, they can repair it, but it's not going to be quick. They didn't have a loaner. And then my next move, look on eBay. <laughs> right? Put in uh, the search, the serial number for this part, and one popped up. Actually, several popped up. but. Which is weird, because these are not just auto parts. You can't just drive down to AutoZone and source these sorts of things. They're, they're big, they're sophisticated, they're rare, they're obsolete, they're 12 years old. You know how 12 years does to an electronic device, right? So they're obsolete. So finding one on eBay is one thing, but finding one on eBay that's close enough is the other thing. We happened to find one that was located in Whittier. Whittier. So we Biola employees are forbidden from buying anything on eBay, but my contractor isn't. So we had my contractor (laughs) buy this thing. We found the address. We sent Joey up. And within an hour and a half, we had that thing in hand. And the generator before the end of the day was running. So what is your mountain? What seems impossible to you? Do you pray about those things? Because fruitful faith... Is a faith that has the one true God as its object, and fruitful faith is a faith that prays about anything against all odds. Prays about anything against all odds. Listen to James 4. He says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So for some of us today, a faithful application will be for us to begin praying about some things that we have not prayed about because in our mind they're impossible or because in our mind we can do this. Fruitful faith prays about whatever. Tom and Sue Kimber are people that have an intimate level of relationship with the Spirit that's uncommon to me. And... You know they've been praying and we've been praying with them for this visa to come through, right? And they've been just joyfully waiting, enjoying, living out of a suitcase for the last month, basically, traveling from friend's house to friend's house, just living as nomads, praying all the while. Lord, bring our visa in. Well, Tom told me that Monday he began to get discouraged. He, it was the first day that he felt discouraged because time was getting short, and he sat with the Lord and he said, Lord. How shall I pray about this? And he heard the Spirit say, Pray release. So then Tom asked back, Is that for me or is that for the embassy? And he heard the Spirit say, It's for the embassy. So Tom and Sue spent Monday praying the word release for the embassy. Tuesday, they had their visa. Coincidence? Or (laughs) godsidence? seems like God moved in a way in response to their prayers. But if you're like me, you've prayed about a lot of stuff and you're still waiting for a lot of stuff to be answered and you're not, you're not sure because this promise that Jesus gives here, look at verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This is another verse that has troubled the church over the years and the name it and claim it right i mean this is a clear promise of jesus but the name it and claim it idea fails to take the rest of the counsel of scripture into mind it fails to consider this it fails to consider that you can only be assured to receive an answer to prayer that's within the will of god right listen to 1 john 5:14 and 15 and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We know that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the bigger question for me is, how do I know that what I'm praying about is in God's will? Some of those things are really clear, right? As you read and study scripture, some of those Prayers are really clear. This is within the will of God. Some of them lie in gray areas, areas that we need to make judgment calls. So, as you consider things that you're going to pray about or are praying about and wondering, are these within the will of God or not, try running it through this grid, this grid of questions, and see if that might help. If God were to hear and answer this prayer that you're praying, would it glorify Him? Would it bring glory to God? Would it advance God's kingdom? Would it cause grace to extend and the gospel to speed forward? We know those things are God's will, right? We know that He wants to extend His kingdom. We know that He wants everything that we do to glorify Him. Would it thwart the enemy or plunder the enemy's house? God loves to hear and answer prayers that thwart the enemy. When you come up against a certain circumstance or situation and you sense that evil is at play in it, pray against the evil in Jesus' name. God loves to hear and answer those prayers. Would it bring a sinner from death to life? Would it cause you or other disciples to bear fruit? Because that glorifies the Father. And would it demonstrate your love for God or for the world? So what if I'm going to claim this verse? Whatever you pray for, whatever you ask for, believe you've received it and it will be yours. Lord, I want a brand new red Ferrari. If I believe it enough, will it be mine? Well, let's run it through this grid of questions. Would it glorify God? Would it build his kingdom? Would it demonstrate my love for God or my love for the world more? You can't answer that question for me. But I can, and I know the answer to that question, because I love cars. (laughs) I love fast cars, and they're just stuff. So God giving me a red Ferrari would probably foster my love for this world more than it would foster my love for Him. I don't think that prayer would be a prayer offered up inside the will of God. It may be for other people. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be praying for that sort of thing. God, in His ways, can redeem that. But for me, it would be praying a prayer that's outside of the will of God. And I I don't see scriptural basis to have the belief that God would answer that prayer. Last thing that I want us to chew on here from Jesus' teaching on prayer is in verse 25. So, let's recap. Fruitful faith is a faith that has the one true God as its object. Fruitful faith is a, is a faith that prays against all odds. Fruitful faith is a faith that prays about whatever, anything and everything, and believes that it will receive it. And lastly, fruitful faith is a faith that forgives. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is clearly teaching here that if we have a fruitful faith, we will forgive. In fact, he makes it sound like our prayers, as we stand praying, God's hearing and answering of those is contingent upon our forgiveness. We can only pray rightly by being in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we have gladly and joyfully received the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. We stand forgiven. We have been forgiven much in Christ. And for us who have been forgiven much, to begrudge that of a fellow brother or a fellow sister is not fruitful faith. That is not demonstrating the kind of faith that imitates God and His character. So a fruitful faith, one that is the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for, is one that forgives. Is there someone that you need to forgive this morning? Do you have anything against anyone that you need to forgive? Your prayer life depends on it. Jesus is seeking fruit. Faith is the fruit he's seeking. True faith has the one true God as its object, it prays about anything against all odds, and it forgives. So as Jesus looks at our congregation, as he's seeking fruit in our congregation, does he see faith? Does he see fruit? Do our ministries, are we motivated by faith in our ministries? Or are they just dead rope repetitions like what was going on in the temple? Just religious activity done in the name of God, but not anything associated with faith. Heaven forbid if we should get into that place. The author of Hebrews reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's only by faith that we can be reconciled to God and please Him. It's only by faith that we can be involved in fruitful ministry. And that is His call on each one of our lives. As He redeemed us in Christ and enfolded us into the body of the church, He has faithful and fruitful ministry visions for us. He wants us to be engaged in ministry and He wants that ministry to bear fruit. And as Jesus told His disciples in John 15, verse 7, He says, If your words abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given unto you. And so prove... No, and that you might bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. Disciples who bear fruit who demonstrate faith, glorify the Father, and prove to be His disciples. That's what Jesus is wanting for us. So let's consider our lives. Let's consider those mountains that are before us. Let's consider what seems impossible. Let's examine our hearts and see if the fruit of faith is there. I want to take a moment or two of silence and just go into some direct application on Jesus' teaching of prayer right now. Examine your hearts. In a couple of minutes, I'll close us in prayer, and then Caleb will come up and will lead us in a song. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name by faith, acknowledging You as Lord over Your creation, and that includes us, recognizing that You are seeking faith, and recognizing also that we are powerless to produce faith. It's a gift from you, one, Lord, that must be exercised. Forgive us for the ways that we fail to exercise faith. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive us for wandering. I pray, Lord, that you would be at work. I pray that by your Spirit you would fill each member of this congregation and lead us so that, Lord, we do bear the fruit of faith And that as we do, you would get the glory that is due your holy name. Be at work. Show each one of us where our faith needs to be increased. Show each one of us where you want us to step out and to pray about a mountain. Show each one of us where it is that we need to forgive one another. And as you do this, strengthen this church. Make us into a people who who listen to you and whose hearts beat for you and who are joyfully engaged in the ministry and the opportunities that you have for us as a means of glorifying yourself and building your kingdom. We can't do this on our own. We can only do this by humble faith in you, the one true God, who has promised to complete this good work that he started in each of us. So, Lord, have your way. Be glorified as you do. Amen.